Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 18th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast are Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other publications, uh, fine publications. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. Gentlemen, how are each of you doing today? Very well. Very good. Well, we're having some technical difficulties, but I'm not going to let this moment go. I want to show you guys and get your reaction. It only takes about a minute, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. High fly ball, deep right, going back to Rosarena. See ya! A walk-off grand slam for Josh Donaldson. And the Yankees pull victory from the jaws of defeat. What a big win for the New York Yankees. I had to show that. John you've, like, just, you've just lost every Red Sox fan in the country. I, yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. New England demographics are going in the toilet right now for the show. And I'm sure when Rob retweets the podcast, he'll mention that. Don't watch this podcast if you're a Yankee fan. You know? <laughs> but let, let's get to the first topic here because I know some of you guys have a, a, a hard stop here. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the, and I'll bring it up on the screen here, uh, the Chips and Science Act of 2022 it is a legislative victory for the Biden administration. Cannot uh, deny that. Uh, but when, Rob, let me go to you first and get your reaction, what you like about it, what you might not like about it, you know, because all legislation is not perfect. If it's, if it's yep. perfect, it wouldn't be agreed to, you know, from a bipartisan standpoint. But let's get your uh, two cents on it. Yeah, so this is really interesting because the CHIPS Act, and that's short, by the way, for creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors, uh, is the U.S. going forward into what's called industrial policy. This was a big debate in the 90s when it was, what, what do we do about Japan? Now it's, what do we do about China? Where, of course, a lot of our supply chains for electronics and other gadgets start. And by extension, what about being so heavily exposed to factories in Taiwan, which the current regime in China would like to see, you know, reincorporated as a subservient province of Beijing. So this is, <laughs> this is a lot of money in the bill, $280 billion in all. There's $52.7 billion in funding to promote the manufacture of semiconductors, processors, chips, whatever you want to call them, on U.S. soil. There's a lot of money for R&D spread across the government, everywhere from uh, NOAA, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, uh, Department of Energy, NASA. The stuff that didn't make it in, earlier versions would have added a startup visa, uh, would have made it easier for talented immigrants to come from the rest of the world here. Things get left aside in the legislative process, as we all know. And it is interesting that this did pass with uh, bipartisan majorities in, in both houses of Congress. And so we'll see. Risk, of course, is some of this money will get wasted on private enterprise. Some of the R&D stuff is not going to pan out. That's the way of the world. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll certainly have to see how much production actually gets moved back to the U.S. versus companies deciding, you know what, we'll, we'll just take a chance. We'll stay in these potentially dicey parts of the world to save a few bucks right now for this quarter. So, Stuart, what is because this is the question I think a lot of people have. What's your reaction to the fact that when legislation like this gets passed, and we all agree because we're in the tech space, it's a strategic area for the United States, 
um, the, the, the um, I think Rob rightfully pointed out that the semiconductor industry, that you know, 25 years ago, the threat was Japan. Now it's shifted to China. So there's now security issues. Certainly, the, the noise around an invasion of Taiwan would not be good for the entire world economy, just not the United, just not the United States, but certainly the world economy. But how do you um, answer that that the, the the feedback you ultimately get from some part some parts of the political spectrum that says, you know, the United States government is placing a bet with an industry. There's lots of other industries you can make that same claim, and the United States can't bail out everyone. You remember when they tried to bail out the auto industry years ago? That well, not just years ago, a couple of times when the Iacocca yeah. was uh, had a Chrysler. And then recently, I think um, there was yep. some, uh, there was legislation during uh, the Obama administration that you know came along to help the uh, auto industry. But how do you counter that argument? Because the way to counter the argument is something that I don't see discussed all that much in the in the mainstream media and the coverage of this. We're almost all covering it from a manufacturing point of view and from a more or less nationalistic, jingoistic point of view. Oh, we have to. I don't see this as a bet. I see this as a national security issue. Um, Rob touched upon the Japanese and the Chinese and the security threat, and I think that is possibly the biggest rationale and the biggest reason that this ought to be supported, even though, by the way, it's not going to be enough, by the way. $50 billion is, in the grand scheme of things, a drop in the bucket compared to what other countries' investment are being made. But throughout the last... 30 years or so, even dating back as little as a decade ago, there have been efforts first by the European Union and then, then by the Japanese and most recently by the Chinese to impose their own security, copyright, and other kinds of software standards and security protocols. And the reason that they have been unable to do this is because a great deal of the hardware capability has been outside of China. And I think what China is doing with its uh, China 2025 program, I, you know, their version of Stalin's five-year plan, is to try to overcome the fact that they don't control the world's hardware manufacturing. If they were managed to take over Taiwan, they would now have control over most of the chip output. And the importance of that is they would then be able to stipulate security protocols and their own uh, software and copyright standards, which they tried to do as little as a decade ago. There was this effort called WIPA that they tried to do, and they tried to bring it, which was their security protocols that they were trying to introduce and pass through ISO. Um, and ISO would allow them to come to a meeting, and the Chinese delegation walked out when ISO said, we're not even going to put this on the agenda, and they passed IEEE standards instead. They are not going to stop trying to impose their own security standards. And if the U.S. or Korea or Japan or the EU does not establish some sort of a manufacturing base for these products, they're not going to be able to control what kind of security software and protection standards that will be imposed on the market from China. So, John, what's your reaction to this? Do you agree with the fact that this is a national security issue and that that probably differentiates it from other other you know parts of the u.s economy because it does have a lot of tentacles and i agree with Stuart that even beyond the manufacturing the economic the uh, the jobs related part of this but i think Stuart brings up some very valid points in terms of hey if china gets into taiwan then all of a sudden you know you have that they will they will make changes in the way chips are manufactured over there that can really create some very dubious security issues for technologies going forward 
I mean, I do. I think there's a security issue, sure, but it's been a security issue for 25 years. And you've got companies like Apple that have never made a chip in their lives. You know, they say, well, it's an Apple chip. Well, no, actually, it's a Chinese chip because they're not actually making the chips, you know. So uh, that that's been an issue. And people like us have warned about it for decades. Um, We've also got the Saudis big into uh, chip manufacturing. It really is about the fab plants. And that's really about IP. All that intellectual property has to be handed off to them if they're going to make the chips. And once you get down to, well, we want seven nanometer chips. We want six nanometer chips. We want, you know, Three. when you we've got. Yeah, we've got to give that IP to them. And that's that's been a real issue. But these companies were perfectly happy, including Intel was going to at one point completely get out of the fabrication business completely. That was their plan. So um Lots of us warned, hey, maybe that's not such a great idea. And now those are all coming home to roost. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of things, but it's not just the security thing. There are lots of ways to get into the systems. They don't need to make the chips to do that. So, uh, but yeah, you know, it's the reverse globalization or, and, and look, in terms of legislation, it worked with the automotive industry. It saved yeah. the American automotive industry. It went off a cliff. And that kind of regulation actually saved it. And here we are back making great cars. And it wasn't the quality of the products. It was, you know, nobody was buying them. So I think uh, at some points you have to step in. Um, This is a good one. And we're going to come up to EVs in a minute. So just presage that. (laughs) Yeah. So so let's let's jump into that right away, because this is really, to me, interesting. This this Inflation Reduction Act was, um, which I, I just love the terminology. I mean, come on, at the end of the day, you, you got to give the Democrats credit for coming up with some creativity in terms of the way they name legislation. The part that I struggle with, and we'll talk about this uh, in a second, in Washington, you know, could you have a situation where pass something called a, a, an Inflation Reduction Act and much of the energy conservation, the EV-related portions are predicated that you have to buy something to get a savings and they count that as a savings, you know, it would be kind of like me asking Stuart, Hey Stuart, let's go to the Yankee game tomorrow because they're raising prices 50% on Yankee tickets and okay, I'll go, but you're, you're only saving the money because you could, you're going now to to take advantage of that promotion or whatever that deal is. And that's very squirrely from an accounting standpoint. So I'm okay with a lot of the EV portion stuff, John, that I want you to go into because a lot of there is, is incentive based. You know, in California, and I think it's part of the federal legislation as well, you know, you, you know, you have to be making a certain level of income. I think there's only one Tesla model that's that technically qualifies because you can't buy a high end, you know, $125,000 high end um, Tesla model and qualify for any of the rebates that it gets. So, you know, I, I understand the intent, but the execution, once again, makes me squirrely. But, John, let me pull you into that and get your uh, since you're, you're, this is in your wheelhouse. Right. Well, unlike the um, the you know the baseball tickets, the baseball tickets are not going to go down, but the automotive prices will. So that's you know that's the point of this is to give it that nudge to use that you know if people are familiar with that philosophy of the nudge, uh, sort of quasi paternalistic. Give it a nudge, get it started. You get enough people to buy them, prices will drop on those EVs, and there's no question that you know prices will drop on the cars. So it needs that kind of push. Um, 
You're right. What it does is it gives Tesla back some of its $7,500 uh, consumer tax credits next yep. year. Um, it gives GM back some of their $7,500 consumer tax credits. Um, mm -hmm. And it does also focus on encouraging them to make um, uh, EVs, electric vehicles and fully electric vehicles. And it also looks at the sourcing of it. So rather than, you know, complaints would be, well, we're just going to subsidize companies coming in um, from China selling, you know, EVs here or the parts or components. It actually stipulates that the batteries have to be 50 percent of their components have to be from uh, the U.S., Canada, because we love Canada uh, and Mexico. <laughs> and within a couple of years, it's got to be 100 percent. Even GM and Ford have said, ah, I'm not sure I can do that yet. But, you know, it will get there. It will help the industry, I think, tremendously. And, and it, it, that transition is going to happen. But again, you alluded to the income levels. You know, if you make over $150,000 a year, you don't get that tax credit. It's really to try and encourage lower price vehicles. And th there's a cap on SUVs of 80000 and 55,000 for sedans. So those cars have to be at some kind of reasonable price level. And that kind of makes sense too. I can't afford, you know, the $125,000 sedan. That's just not in my, you know, in my budget. So it encourages people like me and others to be able maybe to afford them. Uh, you know, Stuart, because uh, I'm not going to let go of this point. When you look at the, the legislation and you look at just the income points that, that John just made, I know Washington's very sensitive to passing legislation that has the perception of helping higher income people. But, in, but if your goal is to, for the market to build, uh, to consume more EVs, why should you even care about what model someone buys? Because, you know, rising tide affects all boats. And A, if a bunch of high income people are buying more EVs, a lot of these EVs um, use, use the same components. So that would that should drive down the cost of all models of cars, not just I thought means testing was a Republican talking point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you'll notice that I didn't specify a political party. Both political parties love that. You know, it's like they're going to hold their nose. Well, we passed this legislation, but it's really focused on people who are making X number of dollars or less. Because none of these political parties, especially the Republicans, want to be attached to legislation that says, oh, it's only helping the wealthy, like like uh, John, for example, guy who makes a lot of money. <laughs> and, and the lucrative really, field of consumer technology. I think, I think yeah, we, we all qualify for, for the rebates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, Stuart, what, but what, it, the, the other piece of legislation that I want you to comment on, if you, if you don't mind, is that even outside the EV portion, there's a lot of legislation that works um, that provides relief on buying um, uh, more energy efficient appliances, more energy efficient um, air conditioning, more. Uh, for example, I, I think I was telling you guys, you know, I just bought a brand new uh, 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 gas stove. It was a gas stove because I can't replace it with a, with just a pure electrical one unless I want to spend ten thousand dollars and rewire my condo, which I'm not prepared to do. But my refrigerator is brand new. I'm sure that would fall into the It's probably a new um, energy efficient appliance. The problem with that category is, as you know, people don't change their appliances until they conk out. You know, they do. Because the cost savings, no matter how much they might save, is not going to offset the cost of buying a brand new appliance. So give me some color on that part of the argument, if you don't. Well, the, the problem with the American market is the problem that you're, have, that you're having. Most of the European market is the majority of it is electric. So it's it's much easier for the European market 
um, to pass overarching uh, legislation where in, in, in the EU where appliances are concerned. But because our market is so divided between electrical, which is mostly new construction, and gas, which is old construction, it makes this, this sort of legislation much more difficult to parse out for the normal for the normal consumer. All I was thinking of when I was reading what I could of the legislation was that scene in Monty Python's Meaning of Life, these school years where the students are trying to figure out what sequence that they need to do things. Well, first you put your clothes on the upper hook and then you help your lower, uh, your classmate do something else. And then you write the letter home to your mother. Then you, you go back to your room before you go home for the, and, and the, so I do the, that's what it sounded like to me as I'm reading it. These ornate restrictions and qualifications and caveats and, and, and price levels and, and where things are made in the 50% here and 20% there. And it goes away at the end of the year, but it's not until 2025. It, I mean, how does anybody from manufacturers to consumers figure out what I qualify for? It just seems that they've made these instructions. So, you know, it's sort of like, getting a smartphone and getting a booklet that's the size of Gone with the Wind to figure out how to work the damn thing. So, you know, you... It's always a companion talking during the podcast. Only you could uh, could bring in a uh, a Monty Python. (laughs) What (laughs) came into my head was John Cleese explaining all of the the sequence of events uh, to these students who were... And that's what it's what what all of this sounds like to me. Um, it's all of these varying interests, these jingle wishes, protect our industry, um, but you know not too much here. And we want you to do this. It seems like too many cooks, essentially. All of these constituencies needing to get their their two cents into the bill. I mean, for what it's worth, I prefer the scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original movie, not the stupid dad remake <laughs> Johnny Depp where the kids are asked to sign the contract to enter mm-hmm. the, uh, and the boilerplate text goes down to like one point, uh, one point font. Right. And I think that's pretty humorous. Rob, t- uh, close us on this topic. What's your thoughts? So what, again, this is an exercise in industrial policy. And so what it's trying to do, you know, a lot of people have said for years, if you want people to use fewer fuel sources that emit carbon dioxide pollution, put a tax on it. The problem is you're asking people to pay more for a decision they already made. This is encouraging people to tilt their next purchase. You know, when that that oven, that uh, hot water heater, whatever is due for replacement, it's going to incentivize people to just make it an electric one. And I'm pretty sure that like the best buys of the world, the Amazons of the world, uh, every appliance maker is going to be able to figure out some way to point out, you know, this thing comes with this advantage. You get this much back. And the whole idea is the more, the faster you can electrify everything, that everything in your house runs on electricity, you take advantage of the tailwind already going through the power generation industry, which is that solar power and wind power are getting so cheap. You know, coal power is an economic loser, except in Germany, where they were stupid enough to turn off their nuclear power plants and rely on Russian gas. (laughs) So it's already going this way. And every fossil fuel fired power plant, you retire in a place with solar with wind or with a nuclear power plant that is being kept in service, then the the entire economy gets that much cleaner, that much greener. And it's doing in a way that you're not punishing people for the purchase they made 10 years ago, but the purchase they make next year, five years, whatever. 
And certainly we've seen in things like electric cars and in the share of renewable power generation, these industries keep outperforming expectations. So a little bit of a nudge here, I think, does stand to make things. Uh, I, make I love that, 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 term, the, that economic term, um, the nudge. <laughs> the yeah. only thing I would close on this, but if you buy into this, you wonder, and I don't want to give Washington any ideas, but those will probably surface <laughs> in the legislation. Why not give every family, I'm not giving them a credit, but give them, give them a, um, a Nest a, a smart thermostat or a, uh, an Equibee, uh, and not just get a credit because, you know, I, I've upgraded my home and you get like a, in California, you get a $50 credit from your utility company. Give them one because could you imagine what the cost, because there is tangible savings. If every home in America or 85 or 90% of American homes has smart thermostats, can you imagine the savings that would drive? The, the, the problem with that, Mark, is I live in a pre-war building and a huge um, percentage of Americans who rent apartments. No, I get, that. I get that. Mark I get that. But the, the bottom line is it still would have a material effect because I'm pretty sure that penetration on smart thermostats is, as quickly as those, those new products, successful as those products have been, it's a relatively small percentage of existing homes have smart thermostats. Oh, well... It, it, the problem with smart meters is that obviously a lot of people live in apartments. Con Ed has been asking to install a smart meter in my apartment for the last three years. They've even sent me threatening letters saying, if you don't let us do it, then we're going to increase your, your, you know, your bill or whatever. And I, I wrote them a mean note back. I'm going, show up. You keep telling me you want to put it in. I'm here. Put it in. Nobody is stopping you. You're the only ones who are stopping you. I can't get Con Ed to come in and put the damn meter in. Right. Put the Con in Con Ed. Yeah, really. <laughs> so the other point I'd add is they don't make smart thermostats in West Virginia. And this was basically a bill written to make Senator Joe Manchin happy. Uh, the only way they could have done a better job of that is by calling it the Almost Heaven Act after the West Virginia tourism slogan. God bless you, We'll be very interested to see the way this pans out, but uh, we'll see if it's really anti-inflationary. I'll just leave it like that. This is, this is <laughs> Let's get our last topic here, because I know that uh, John has got only a few more minutes here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the end-to-end um, -end encryption um, issue and why it's so important. You know, Rob, you just came back from a um, very popular uh, trade show in, in Vegas that happens every year built around security. Uh, so I'd like to give well, you a comment, comment on this. Yeah, so this has been in the news for on and off for years. For a while, it was the case of uh, law enforcement types pointing out the risks of end-to-end -end encryption and going dark. Uh, and now we've seen more recently the other end of this, where Facebook messages from a teenager in, I think, uh, Nebraska, or was it Indiana, who was seeking an abortion were turned over to the police, not because Facebook wanted to. There was an actual legal search warrant from a court. And of course, if they were end-to-end -end encrypted, Facebook would not have anything to turn over at all. And the backdrop of this in terms of what's available is your options do vary. Uh, on my phone right now, I am looking at like four different messaging apps. So text messaging, that's completely in the clear, unless I'm doing it with other Android users who have the current version of Google's Messages app, and then we benefit from RCS encryption and transit. But if it's to any of you all with an iPhone, Anybody can eavesdrop on that. Um, iPhone to iPhone through Apple's iMessages, that's end-to-end -end encrypted. 
WhatsApp end-to-end -end encrypted signal end-to-end -end encrypted Facebook Messenger encrypted only in transit. And um, people sort of haven't decided if that's something that they should include by default. Facebook Messenger has the secret conversations option you can enable, which does mean that there's no trace, only the metadata is left, who you were talking to and when, which certainly to uh, a trained law enforcement investigator could itself be worth something. Stuart, uh, let me get you to, um, to opine on this. It probably goes to some of the conversation we were having before the podcast began. And again, I always, because I'm a consumer tech guy at heart, do consumers really understand end-to-end uh, -end encryption? Do they really get that concept? I mean, it sounds really cool. It sounds very James Bond. If you said the words end-to-end -end encryption to a mainstream consumer, they'd look at you as if you were talking Greek. Um, what if I call E2E the way security professionals do? E2E <laughs> e crypto, man. We are living, those of us on this podcast and those of us who cover this industry are, are living in a bubble. We think that, I don't say, I, I shouldn't say that. We, it's not that we think that everybody understands everything that we do. I think there there is a growing and has been for, for decades a digital divide that is simply beginning to get worse and worse and worse as these security issues. Um, you know, I'm just convincing my own wife just to put in a capital letter and some punctuation in her passwords is like wrestling an alligator. You know, um, uh, I, I read um, Rob's piece on this and the fact that people like, password uh, one password people are saying we should be encouraging people to write their passwords down in a notebook because the alternative is even worse this is the kind of level of 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 of, of knowledge that general consumers have the amount of time that i spend with editors can, trying to convince them to to run here's how to keep your secure I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that somebody sent me, forwarded me a story and included 25 email addresses. Now, and this is a smart person who didn't understand that you should put all of those emails in a blind CC so they're not out in the open. And how mainstream people don't understand better password security, better email practices. Um, this is just an indication that the fact that we have so much of these issues indicates how much of a mainstream problem this is right well john i know your password is like george costanza's it's bosco if i'm not mistaken <laughs> um that was you know that was you know what's so funny about that that episode in cypher was from the mid 90s and i think that uh you when they were making fun of it back then but you know put, putting the password issue aside do you think that from an uh the encryption thing that consumers get it where does the where does the responsibility lie? Do we need do we need um, regulatory or legislation that tells uh, that instructs companies you must use end to end encryption? We're going to get that. Well, I, no, I'm, hey, I'm grasping at straws here. How, how do we get to the, how do we get to the promised land? Well, I think the, the way I always explain it to consumers is this way: Look, in order to wiretap, you know, in the old TV movies, the spy or the police wanted to listen to a phone conversation of yours. They actually had to physically go in and tap that yes. line somewhere. That was, that was, a, and they needed a warrant to do it. So you needed a warrant and then you needed to do this physical thing. And it was kind of difficult to do. 
with electronic communications over the internet, I can do it from where I'm sitting right now. I can tap into any conversation anywhere on the planet, right? In theory, that's what I can do. And that's the difference, right? Without any encryption, it's wide open free for all. And, um, you know, law enforcement listens in on conversations like that with or without warrants. It just means yeah. they can't use it in a trial, but they do it. Yeah. Um, the United States government does it without it with these secret warrants right now and goes in and taps certain conversations all the time. So um, the idea of end to end encryption is to make it difficult again. Not impossible. Doesn't mean they can never get it. They could because no encryption is unbreakable. That's not a thing, but it would make it a lot more difficult. Um, and I think it is sort of explaining that analogy to people might help them with it. And also the issue that's brought this up, of course, um, before it was, you know, terrorists using phones to secretly message each other and coordinate attacks. That's one thing we may not be very sympathetic to protecting that kind of um, communication. But when it comes to our own personal lives, and these women are are now up on felony counts. I mean, I think women are thinking, hmm, my Facebook comments that my friends saw, that's going to get me in jail on a personal matter in my life. That's a whole different matter. So I think mm -hmm. it, it will come around. And I think companies will just have to do end-to-end -end decryption. It doesn't make it perfect. You know, no. we should also make it clear, look, you could still break into it or they could have a back door in it. But um, it still would be a big improvement over yeah. what we have now. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that entirely. I agree with that entirely. Yeah, uh, it's all about you don't have to conduct your daily life in a way that makes government surveillance easy. The point mm -hmm. of encryption, even if it's just in transit, is it makes right. dragnet bulk surveillance like what we found out the NSA was doing with any kind right. of international communications impossible. Right. Governments can still target you. They can exploit a vulnerability. Just yesterday I was installing updates in every single Apple device I own to fix two different zero-day vulnerabilities that allowed remote code execution that Apple was aware may have been actively exploited, meaning by the creeps at NSO group, the uh, Israeli uh, spyware vendor. Right. And so, all of this, by the way, is why there won't be regulation, because there are too many national security hawks who don't want to throw out the, the surveillance baby with the bathwater. So they don't want to make the private. They don't want to do a wholesale blanket. And, you know, you must encrypt everything because that means that the government won't be able to. Yeah. Snoop. So that's why uh, you my neighbors at uh, Langley and uh, <laughs> in, uh, Columbia, Maryland, uh, have thoughts about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey guys, let me let's we're gonna have to wrap up the uh, podcast here. But again, thank you for uh, taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast, and don't forget to uh, to follow me on Twitter at Mark Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. Go Yankees! Thanks, guys. Go Mets. Go Nats. <laughs> <laughs>